All right, welcome everybody. Pastor Eli James here. This is Voice of Christian Israel on Eurofolk Radio. Today is February 4th, 2024. And I want to continue the theme that we started today on bloodlines concerning the true cause of evil in the world. Of course, the fallback position of the non-seedliners and no Satan advocates is that it's the lust of the flesh. And that is the main cause of evil in the world. And yes, that is an important source of evil. However, it's not the only source of evil. Brother Abraham just quoted uh, from Leviticus that certain people do wrong by accidentally through ignorance. That can hardly be attributed to lust of the flesh. So this idea that sin can only be caused by lust of the flesh is simply inaccurate. And well, and Michael and I talked about the fact that most liberals do harm. Uh, they want to harm the white race, uh, want to harm Christianity, not because of any lust of the flesh, but because they truly believe that they're doing the right thing. Okay, so being misled, being tricked, being deceived is just as an important cause of evil or wrongdoing than lust of the flesh. There's, I'm sure anybody in the chat room can recollect times when they did something really horribly wrong and not part of the, their own lust. They simply misunderstood something, made a mistake. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. For lack of knowledge, it doesn't say my people are destroyed because of lust of the flesh, which is true. It does, they, we are destroyed because of that also. However, it doesn't have to be lust of the flesh. It can simply be ignorance. And Brother Abraham just quoted several passages where the people sin by ignorance. Ignorance. If you're ignorant of something, doesn't mean you do it deliberately. Although, if you ignorantly drive your cliff over a car, I mean, your car over a cliff, <laughs> inversion therapy is what I need. Like your car over a cliff, whether you do it deliberately or through ignorance, crash. So, we can't, and, and I think Michael really nailed it. He said, the non-seedline position is simplistic. The no-Satan position is simplistic. They haven't considered all of the potential meanings of the words in the Hebrew and the Greek. And so we want to get it right. That's what we're here for. We want to get it right. And Michael and I are going to continue with this series on whether or not there is a real Satan, whether or not demons are real, whether or not the sons of God can be angels or are they Adamites. We're going to continue this theme. And it's one of those themes that's a very contentious in various circles. You know, there's... I think there's three groups of uh, opinion on Genesis chapter 6. Are the uh, fallen ones or are the sons of God in Genesis 6 fallen angels? Are they Adamites? Or are there something else? I forget what the third category is. We'll get into that next week. But uh, there's still disputation about whether they are in fact sons of God. However, uh, right now what I want to address is specifically the subject of whether sins of the flesh is the only source of evil. And a lot of the non-seed liners uh, assert that sins of the flesh is the only source of evil. But here, I'd like to play first this uh, audio by Paul Harvey entitled, If I Were the Devil. That was an ad. <laughs> Here if we go. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the... Adam kind. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. 
I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. <laughs> and the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington... And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Okay, how much of that is less of the flesh? Well, certainly some of it. But what Paul Harvey is clearly saying is deception. Deception is what causes most of the evil in the world. Most of the evil in the world. So thank you very much, Paul Harvey, for setting us straight about that. So why is there evil in the world? Why is there? It's not all done by us. It's not done by, all by the lust of their flesh, clearly. The vast majority, and I, I, I assert this strenuously, the vast majority of the evil in the world is done through ignorance by people being lied to, deceived, and acting accordingly. It has nothing to do with any personal gain by the individual. Although you may get angry with somebody and then uh, you, know, you, you have um, uh, a brain fart... <laughs> and do something you shouldn't have done that you will regret later. People will act uncautiously. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is all about the the consequences of failing to obey his laws. But then there are many of those who are simply ignorant of his laws, and that includes Christians, so-called Christians, because many of them believe the law has been done away with. So if some pastor told me that the law has been done away with, that means I can do anything. Well, that's exactly what the devil said, didn't he? All right, folks. So it's not as simple as lust of the flesh. That's only one source of evil. That's what I'm trying to get at, okay? So let's go into the scriptures. And let's read from Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, what now, what is at issue here is whether the serpent was a fallen angel 
or a, a mere humanoid? Now, I have argued it doesn't really matter whether it's a fallen angel or a mere humanoid. The only thing that's important is that Eve was impregnated by somebody other than Adam. And because Cain is not mentioned in Adam's bloodline, not signified as a son of Adam, although he is signified as a son of Eve, which means that she was impregnated. It's not the case that it was a metaphorical tree. (laughs) We're going to go into the word tree. We're going to do a word study of the word tree today. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh Elohim had made. Okay, so very subtle, very crafty, very shifty, just like that devil that Paul Harvey was talking about. Not not some uh, orangutan or, uh, you know, some four-legged beast. Not a four-legged beast. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. It's a question. Now, he's talking to Eve. Unless the Bible says specifically, that Yahweh gave a four-legged beast the, the ability to speak, like uh, the donkey that spoke to the, uh, Cain, the uh, Balaam the prophet. And there's other instances where animals speak in, in plain Hebrew. <laughs> that uh, We're told that Yahweh made that animal speak for a reason. Okay, There's no such indication here that this is a four-legged beast. We've done plenty of studies on beasts of the field, and there's plenty of uh, places in Scripture where such beasts are two-legged. Two-legged beasts. And, of course, Nor Davis has stated very, very clearly, because this beast was to help Adam in the garden. And you're not going to invite a four-legged beast into your garden to help you. That four-legged beast will always destroy the garden you have, that beast has to have hands and feet. Now, I personally believe that these were the Adamites from Genesis chapter 1. The Bible clearly says that male and female, he created them, and the Adam kind was uh, prolifically um, being fruitful and multiplying. Then there was Yahweh's day of rest. So let's assume it was a thousand years because uh, one day with Yahweh is a thousand years for men. So not literal 24-hour days. But in any case, they were being prolifically multiplying all over the place. What happened to those people? The non-seed liners insist that there were only three people on the planet when Genesis 3 occurred. Namely, Nachash, Adam, and Eve. Well, that's clearly not the case. You have to ignore the existence of all those being all those in Genesis 1 who are being fruitful and multiplying. Did they stop multiplying? Did they all disappear? They're not they're not seeing the total context of Genesis 1, 2, 3, actually Genesis 1 through 6. They're not seeing the total context of Genesis 1 through 6. Genesis 3, 2, and the woman said unto the serpent, again, it's Nachash, and here, let's see the definition of Nachash. It says, a snake from its hiss, but other anthologies give a, a, a more detailed explanation. Deceiver, enchanter, uh, witchcraft, okay, nakash. So just because Strong's only has a one-word definition does not mean it, it stops there. And as the, the Clifton Emheiser article we consulted this morning shows, you really need to do more in-depth study Study to show thyself approved and say, okay, it means snake. Must be a snake. Well, <laughs> little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her cords and, curds and whey, sorry. And along came a spider and uh, talked to her. And she ran away as fast as she could. <laughs> or an orangutan or any other four-legged beast. No way, it's not a four-legged beast, folks. There's absolutely no way. 
And it's not a snake. It's not a literal snake. Uh, okay, here certainly serpent must be considered as being a metaphor for some two-legged beast that's capable of having a discussion with Eve, a discussion about right and wrong. A discussion about right and wrong. What snake would be able to do that? And why does Yahshua refer to Jews as serpents and vipers? Okay, are they literal serpents and vipers? Well, clearly it's not the case that it's always literal in the in the Bible. But we do talk about a serpent race that's on two legs. Vipers, he called them. And that's what we call them too. And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Okay, and here the word tree is etz. The word tree is etz. Okay. And this is very obviously literal trees because we're talking about apples, oranges, grapes, that sort of thing. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, now the word midst does not necessarily mean the center. It can also mean to sever a bisection, that is by implication, by implication the center, between half, middle, mid, midst, out of, through, or throughout, it's unclear that it means the direct center, but it comes from the root meaning center. Doesn't necessarily mean a little spot. Could be everywhere. Everywhere within the garden. So we're told that Adam had helpers, but some of those helpers might have been uh, very evil. Might have been fallen angels. Might have been males of another species capable could be blacks, because we know that blacks can mate with white women and vice versa to produce offspring, forbidden offspring. It's forbidden offspring. It's not just eating. The next word we have to discuss is eat, which is a call to eat literally or figuratively, to consume, burn up, devour. Dine, eat, feed, food, meat. And there's also verses in where the word eat is used in a figurative sense to have sex with, to enjoy something. You know, it's very common for us males to talk about women as if they were a dish. <laughs> in fact, that's a good, I haven't heard that usage of the word. Oh, what a dish. What a dish she is, right? Comparing her with food. But she's not literal food. Do women get offended by such terminology or not? I don't know. I've never asked a woman that question. Are you offended if a man calls you a dish or a uh, or cheesecake? <laughs> right? That sort of thing. The word eat, and we find very much throughout the Bible, that the Hebrew words have almost always the same range of meanings as the English words do. And so you cannot just pick your favorite meaning out of all the ones you don't like and say, oh, this is the only thing it could possibly mean. However, in verse 3, she says, God told me, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, Okay, so there's one type of tree from which you shall not consume the fruit, partake of, you shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Touch. Naga. Very interesting. Sounds very much like uh, Nakash. Naga, Nakash, Naga, Nakash. Naga is the Sanskrit word for fallen angels. And primitive root properly to touch, lay a hand upon. To lie with a woman. This is coming from Strong's, folks. By implication, to reach 
figuratively to arrive, acquire, to strike, to be able to bring down, maybe rape, cast, come nigh, draw near, get up, blah, blah, blah. But to touch. Now, let's talk about literal fruit. Is it possible to eat literal fruit, like apples, oranges, grapes, etc., without touching it? What kind of fruit from a literal tree can you eat without touching it? Remember, Eve said she was forbidden to even touch this tree. How can you eat, pluck a grapefruit off a tree without touching it? Clearly, we're not forbidden to touch literal fruit. But there is a certain type of fruit, a certain type of tree, namely the tree that can give us the knowledge of good and evil, which certainly literal fruit cannot do. Not figs, not lemons, not oranges, no literal fruit. Maybe the sacred mushroom, but that's not a tree. (laughs) That's on the ground. Although it can grow off of a rotten tree or a rotting tree. Doesn't have to be a dead tree. But clearly, literal fruit must be touched to be consumed. So there's something radically different about this latter tree in the garden. Yes, we want to play devil's advocate and consider the arguments of the non seed liners. However, I have found that I can never get any non-seed liners to debate, argue, even discuss the differences between the two-seed line argument and the non-seed line argument. They, they throw their hands up, back off, say, no, I don't want to talk about it. There's something strange about that attitude. Don't want to talk about it. Number one, as we were saying this morning, the no, I believe that the no Satan attitude, since they do not believe in Satan, that means there's no possibility that the Nahash creature in Genesis chapter 3 is a fallen angel or literally Satan or anything of the disembodied kind that illegally embodied. Okay, but there's many, many instances of in Scripture where such embodiments take place. And the vast majority of theologians, even the Judeo-Christians, say, well, it's got to be fallen angels. And, of course, the extra-biblical literature, such as Enoch and uh, and Jasher, will tell us that these are indeed fallen angels, and they even gives us their names. But then the non-seedlers say, well, no, no, you can't go outside the Bible. You must stay within the Bible. I will not any, accept any arguments from the Apocrypha. Okay, fine. And that's what we did this morning. And we're going to keep doing it because these angel beings, the sons of God, are angelic beings in the first place. And then we, as sons of God, being conceived first in heaven, then we're born of women on this earth, then we're still sons of God. But we had an angelic existence as well, okay? So the idea that the word sons of God can only mean Adam kind in the flesh does not hold, okay? So let's see. Yeah, so where does the cursed seed come from? What's the curse? (laughs) Right? And Brother Abair says, it's the Canaanites, the Edomites. They are the cursed seed, fit for destruction. Acts laid to the root. But that's a, that's a good point because they don't want to admit that that tree, the cursed tree, uh, this was a couple of days before Yahshua was put on the so-called tree himself. He cursed that fig tree, that evil fig tree. That evil fig tree. That's what he called it, an evil fig tree. What possibly could that mean? <laughs> uh Did he just kill an evil fig tree? How can a fig tree be evil in the first place? 
Why did he curse it? Because, in my opinion, it represents people, namely Jews. Okay? All right? Edomites. Edomites, for sure. Now, it could, you know, but it could also, I'm willing to countenance as devil's advocate, it could also mean those evil Judahites who made common cause with the Edomites assisted in the crucifixion of our Messiah. It's clear in the book of Acts where Peter says, you guys are guilty of putting Christ on the cross. Well, we didn't do that. You participated. You were in that mob. You were in that Hira mob that put him to death. And they said, ooh. And they were cut to the heart. So the other, no, Edomite would be cut to the heart. He could care less. Edomites do evil deliberately without hesitation, unless maybe somebody's watching with a camera, etc. Okay? If they can get away with it, they will do it and have no shame. No shame. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked and were without shame. That's because they had not yet done anything wrong. Right? And, well, of course, and the enmity predicted in Genesis 3.15, which I haven't gotten close to yet, that's clearly the enmity between two bloodlines. That's undeniable. And as Brother Abar is saying here, you can't deny that the Edomites are not of that accursed bloodline. Now, whether you want to take it before Esau and go all the way back to the Garden, to the Kenites and the Canaanites, and uh, all, all those followers of the Kenites, you, you don't, like I say, you don't have to assume that Nachash was a literal angel. Can be a humanoid. All you have to do is have two bloodlines. And the Bible teaches two bloodlines, period. That's what it teaches, okay? It's not metaphorical. This is not a metaphorical tree in the sense that it's not a living tree which we can, a cow, have sex with, all right? All right, folks? Okay, you got to look at all the different meanings of the words. You can't just pick and choose your favorite meaning and say, this is all it can mean. That is poor scholarship. Okay, so let's get back to Genesis 3.3. So when Eve said, we're not to touch it, lest he die, then she's saying something that of a tree that it, you're even forbidden to touch it. And that's not true of literal fruit. Now, you don't want to touch poison ivy, <laughs> right? And that may give you itching and pain. I, I've never had a reaction to poison ivy, so I don't know what it feels like. But we're not talking about poison ivy here. We're talking about a tree which has offspring. That's clearly what it says in Genesis 3.15. The offspring of the serpent through Eve and the offspring of Seth through Eve. That's what Genesis 3.15 is talking about. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall surely die, or shall not surely die, because here he is contradicting Yahweh who told Adam and Eve not to touch, not even to touch that fruit. So she's being lied to. Now, what animals in nature have the ability to lie, to deceive? Verse 5, For Yahweh, actually it says Elohim here, doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened... Now, apart from the sacred mushroom <laughs> and any kind of uh, LSD-type hallucinatory experience that you can get from certain fruits and vegetables, we're not talking about that type of experience because it says next, and ye shall be as gods. Whoa! What kind of fruit can make me like a god? If I literally eat it with my mouth, 
I want some of that. Give me some of that. Boy, I could stand on the street corner and sell that to the blacks and Latinos and poor whites and even rich whites and make a ton of money if I had a vegetable or a fruit that would give everybody a psychedelic experience. They would be lining up. They would be killing each other to eat that kind of fruit. Guess what? We're killing each other because we have been lied to. The Jews have lied to blacks about white people being evil. They have lied to the Democrats who thinks the Republicans are evil, lied to the Republicans who think the Democrats, well, no, they're right. The Democrats are evil. (laughs) So, but who causes division between the genders? Who has provoked homosexuality among us, provoking a war between heterosexuals and homosexuals? How about the transgender movement? Do innocent teenagers influenced by their moronic, liberal, communist, agitprop teachers are doing wrong by getting transgender surgery from the lust of the flesh? Or have they been mightily deceived? And I mean mightily deceived. They think they're doing the right thing. Because most of these teenagers who opt for this kind of surgery, which, by the way, is irreversible, are being told by their agitprop commie Jew teachers that it's the right thing to do. If you're feeling insecure about yourself, as all teenagers do, then if you get this surgery, you'll feel good about yourself again. That's the problem. Oh, didn't... Isn't that the lie of the serpent? If I ever heard a lie from a serpent, that's a lie from the serpent, folks. But here, what kind of literal fruit will make you like a god? Knowing good and evil. So it's quite obvious, just from the context here, that Adam and Eve did not yet know the difference between good and evil. Otherwise, the serpent wouldn't have told him, told Eve that. Then your eyes will be open. And then, once you partake of this particular type of fruit, which is a genome of human fruit, then you will know the difference between good and evil, something that did not know yet. Okay? And still not yet, because Eve had not yet consumed this forbidden fruit. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it now food, okay, let's take a look at the word food, eatable, food, fruit, meat, uh, provender, okay, but we know that food has, as I said earlier, in English and Hebrew, they have the same range of meanings almost in every, in the word of case of every single word, the same meaning, range of meaning in both Hebrew and probably even Greek and English, because English is based on Hebrew. And that's that's where we get our range of meanings from, our original range. So, and of course, we know that a humanoid can be pleasant to the eyes. Is that not the case? But to make one wise, in the sense, what's the sense of wise here? Sakal, primitive root, to be causatively make or act, circumspect, and hence intelligent. Consider, expert, instruct, prosper, prudent, skill, have good success, teach, understand, wisdom, Consider, make wise, guide wittingly. But remember, Nakash is a deceiver. He's also a deceiver. And so make one wise in that sense as well. And are you a wise guy, (laughs) right, Trying, trying to trick me? She took of the fruit and which she had to have touched as well. 
but she was not following Yahweh's instruction. This is the tree which she was instructed not to touch. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat or did partake. Partake. Consume. Let me repeat the definition of eat. Now this is in Strong's. To eat literally or figuratively. Consume. Devour. Feed. Meat. Lay. What does lay mean? <laughs> does it mean like in the previous definition of the other word? Lie with a woman? Or with a man. Verse 7. And the eyes of them both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Before they did this they were naked. But not ashamed. Because they had nothing yet to be ashamed of. Now they were ashamed. Can eating a fig. Or a pomegranate. Or a grapefruit make you feel ashamed? Make you feel guilty? Oh, that was really a sweet date. <laughs> I shouldn't eat fruit that's that sweet. I might get fat. It goes right to my hips. So this they immediately realized that they had done something wrong out of ignorance. Out of ignorance. And that's what Paul says when he says Eve was deceived. And he also says when she was beguiled, the definition of the word beguiled in the Greek is to deceive, oh, I'm sorry, to uh, not corrupt. What is the word now? I'll have to look it up. Uh, to, uh, to seduce totally. To seduce wholly. Now, a seduction is a sexual act. Now, it can be figuratively, uh, I was seduced by that pi pineapple <laughs> tart. <laughs> and I'm not talking about a woman. <laughs> I was seduced by that pineapple tart. Yeah, that word can be used figuratively as well. But to seduce wholly, that means completely. What does that mean with regard to food or anything other than sexual intimacy? So again, you have to look at all the usages of a particular word. Sometimes those usages are sexual. And very many of these words are often used in a sexual context. Even the word to know. He knew her in the biblical sense. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, which they didn't even conceive of before. It didn't occur to them that they were naked. It didn't mean anything to them. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Okay? So, they didn't eat figs. <laughs> it doesn't say they ate figs. It says they took fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They didn't use those fig leaves as food. And they heard the voice of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, would they hide themselves from him if they had just eaten fruit? And actually, the context here says everything was good for food. Everything that was in the garden was good for food. It wasn't like they were out in Kansas or Nebraska where they have some poison, <laughs> poison food or like mushrooms. Mushrooms can kill you. There are probably certain foods out there that can kill you. Certain berries can kill you. But it says it was all good for food. So it wasn't anything dangerous. There was nothing dangerous in the garden. It was all literal good food except for this one tree.
he and his he and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim amongst the trees of the garden. Now you can take that literally or figuratively. But why would why would they hide themselves behind Negroes or even other Adamites if they were in the garden? They already were ashamed of doing that. So they wouldn't be worried about hiding behind a literal tree. And Yahweh Elohim called unto Adam and said to him, Where art thou? <laughs> as, as if we can hide from you. See how ignorant they were? They actually thought they could hide from Yahweh. Ignorance. Ignorance. Not just lust of the flesh, but ignorance causes us to do wrong things, not deliberately. And I maintain that Eve did not sin deliberately. It wasn't the lust of her flesh. She was tricked. She was deceived. Deception causes more anguish, pain, and misery on this planet than even the lust of the flesh. And unto Adam, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. Here's that word naked again. Now, what does eating literal fruit have to do with nakedness? I beg you to answer that question. What does literal fruit have to do with nakedness? Now, you can stand outside and pick apples off a tree naked if you want to. But nakedness was not an issue before they ate of the forbidden or consumed or partook of the forbidden fruit. That didn't come into play with the other fruit in the garden. It's only this particular fruit. So clearly, there is something special. There is something really different about this fruit that does not apply to the good fruit in the Bible. This is evil fruit. Not good fruit, okay? The other fruit in the garden was good fruit, except for this one tree. And Adam said to, now here's a bad translation. It says, the man, okay? Well, it's Adam. This is a particular Adamite who shows blood in the face. said to the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. The forbidden tree of the, I partook of the forbidden tree. And Yahweh Elham said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me. Nasha deluded me, led me astray, seduced me, deceived me. It does say seduce. And it's not figurative. It says seduce. Okay, although the strong concordance inserts the word morally seduce, but that's their opinion. Because it does, as Paul said, how do you seduce wholly? (laughs) Does that mean you really talked me into it? Yeah, well, she got talked into it. But she did more than just talk. She did something that was forbidden, not just talk. What hast thou done? The word done means a physical act. It's not a mental sin, as Ted Weiland falsely proclaims. She actually did something, and Adam did the same thing. Now, he starts talking again to Nahash. Now, is Yahweh going to talk to a literal snake and wag his finger at that snake? <laughs> you did wrong, Mr. Snake. you got to be kidding me if you think that's what this means. And Yahweh Elohim said unto the snake, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all the cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Well, snakes do eat dust because they crawl around on the ground. But so do Jews. 
because they follow us wherever we go and eat our dust. Like snakes in the grass, lying in wait to bite our heels, which is the point of the next verse. And I will put enmity, hatred. Now, do snakes hate us? Do literal snakes actually hate us? I don't think they're capable of hate, or even love, for that matter. They just go after food. They bite you when they're hungry, or if they feel threatened by you. So, he's not talking to a literal snake. Again, this is figurative language. Then, between thy seed, thy offspring, and her offspring, it, that is, her offspring, not just Yeshua, but her entire bloodline shall bruise thy head, and thou, you snake, shall bruise its heel. Because the the pronoun of the second clause has to match the pronoun of the first clause. The first, the pronoun, is it that is a reference to the seed line. Okay, let me back up, because it has to, the pronouns have to match. You can't say that his and it are interchangeable. The pronouns have to match. And I will put enmity between thee, Nachash, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, thy offspring and her offspring. It is her offspring. It's neuter, it's neutral, meaning the entire bloodline, male and female. It does not say, he shall bruise thy head. And thou, you snake, shall bruise his heel. No, it should be its heel to correspond grammatically with the it shall bruise. That's a mistake. And according to Cruden's concordance, the word should be its but it's not, and because the word it's, I-T-S, as a pronoun, was not in popular use when the King James Version was created. And then, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee, all for eating a fig or an apple or a sacred mushroom. All of that, uh, I don't think Yahweh punishes us unduly, unfairly. The punishment must fit the crime, right? And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, well, who hearkened unto the voice of Nachash, so which means they both hearkened unto the voice of Nachash, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Okay, so it's very clear that a lot of this tree language and fruit language is metaphorical. And you can talk about literal fruit and literal trees in the same sentence. Poets do it all the time. And a lot of the Bible is poetry. So let's, uh, what does the Bible say about tree symbolism? To conclude our message for today, tree symbol in the Bible, discover it's spiritual, well, metaphorical, spiritual, literal. You know, we're we're, uh, discussing all possible meanings here. And I'm going to share this article in the uh, chat room. Okay. And Mr. Kim Smith, O ye dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh Elohim unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. Of course, there's all kinds of symbolism for Israelites and for people. So why not that fruit that they were forbidden to even touch let alone consume.
All right, folks? You have to consider all of the, you can't just say, oh, well, it says this. Uh, it says more than just this. Okay, a tree is known by its fruit. Oh, wait a minute. I think I may have the wrong article here. Yeah, here we go. Tree symbolism in the Bible discovered spiritual meanings or metaphorical meanings. As Christians, we know the Bible is full of rich symbolism that reflects the transformative work of God in our lives. One such symbol is the tree, which appears throughout the Bible in various contexts, each time carrying a deeper spiritual meaning or literal meaning, because the purpose of a metaphor is to convey a literal meaning with a non-literal context. From the tree of life in Genesis to the tree of the cross in the New Testament, trees are powerful metaphors that offer profound insights into our relationship with God and with the transformative power of his word. Tell me about it. In this section, we will explore the symbolic significance of trees in the Bible and uncover their deeper spiritual meanings. Meanings, rather. Through biblical verses and explanations, we will unveil the rich symbolism attached to trees in Christian teaching. So, the trees are not often literal, right? So, some of the trees in the garden are literal trees, but others are the offspring of devils. Trees as symbols of life and growth, one of the most profound symbolic meanings attached to trees in the Bible, is the concept of life and growth. Trees represent the abundant blessings that come from God and the flourishing of his creation. In the book of Genesis, we find the reference to the tree of life. Genesis 2.9 states, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hmm. So we've got two different trees here, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life certainly is our genome with Yahshua. Yahshua says, I am the root and the offspring of David. The tree of life is a powerful symbol of eternal life and divine wisdom serving as a reminder. How little of that there is today. Divine wisdom versus fallen angel wisdom, serving as a reminder of God's providence and the promise of everlasting life to not everybody for sure. God doesn't love everybody, nor did Jesus. It represents God's abundant provision for his people and his desire to bless them with an abundance of life. Okay, so fine. That's what trees represent. The tree of life is a powerful symbol of eternal life and divine wisdom, but not those literal trees. They provide us with food and life in the flesh, as long as we live in the flesh, but certainly not eternal life. That's a different kind of tree altogether. Serving as a reminder of God's providence and the promise of everlasting life. It represents God's abundant provision for his people and desire to bless them with an abundance of life. Yes, in this world and in the afterlife, if you qualify. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Okay, Water. Water often symbolizes the law. God's teachings, and the proper way of living. Streams of water. The, the water of life. Living water, as Yahshua told the woman at the well. I am the living water. So there's more to water than just that flowing stuff and the stuff you drink, okay? Most of these symbols are pretty easy. But, in Genesis chapter 3, because there's this bias that the non-seedliners bring to the table that it can't possibly be a fallen angel, can't possibly be anything but a literal tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then it's difficult. So why did they have to wear fig leaves? Why was Eve's womb cursed with painful childbirth? And then she had to bear Cain, who is not mentioned as uh, as Adam's son. You have to take all these things into consideration. You cannot just pick your favorite verse and leave the rest out, or your favorite definition, and not 
and not consider the rest. That's not good scholarship. In Luke 13, 6 through 9, Jesus tells the parable of the barren fig tree, illustrating the importance of bearing fruit in our lives and growing in our faith. Well, yeah, it does mean that. But would he, would, would he destroy anything that, that represents growing in our faith? Quote, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vinedressers, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Is this talking about Jews or literal fig trees? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig it around it and put out manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay. Well, when have Jews ever borne good fruit? I think he cut it down immediately. I don't think they quoted the whole thing. So, folks, you got you can't just pick certain verses out of context. You have to go through the whole context. And yes, they're correct that uh, water symbolizes uh, well bread. What's the bread of life? Bread symbolizes life too. Okay, you can't just pick your favorite symbolism, your favorite meanings, and pretend that it cannot possibly have a different meaning, or even a meaning that you really don't like, <laughs> right? That's the essence of the difference between seed line and non-seed line, and we'll find out which is the more profitable understanding of what happened in the garden. And clearly, there's absolutely no doubt that the enmity between the two seed lines is not between literal trees or literal fruit. It's between two humanoid species who are prophesied to hate one another until the judgment day. That is what the Bible teaches, and that is where I rest my case. The prosecution rests. Let someone speak up for the Emery, uh, Jennings, and the rest of the crowd that does not want to believe in two seed line. Let someone come forward and explain their meaning and see if how much sense that, that view makes. Okay? Well, thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Don't be fooled by snakes. <laughs> All right? Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.